You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching is lesson number three from Gentle and Lowly, covering chapters six and seven. Good evening, ladies. I hope your study has been continuing to go well. Um, I'm gonna tell you about this in a little bit, but this was probably my favorite um, section as I was working through the book. Um, so as Ortland put it in his introduction, we're gonna look at two more facets of Christ tonight. And um, just like last time at the end, I'm gonna give you an action step, something that I want you to do to make sure that you're not leaving um, this study with only empty knowledge, but as um, Ephesians 2.8 says, that you would walk in the good works that Christ has prepared for you. So like I said, chapter six might just be my favorite chapter in the entire book. Um, I know we have a lot more to go and there's still many beautiful things and um, rich things to discover about Jesus, but the truth that Orland so beautifully presents um, of Jesus never casting us out um, is just the balm that my soul needs to hear on a regular basis, right? So um, I wanna pray for us before we get started and then we'll jump in. So Lord, thank you. Um, Thank you, Jesus, for your never-ending love, your never-ending patience um, for us. Thank you that you have shared your word with us so we can know who you are. Um, God, I pray that as we um, study tonight, as we learn about Jesus and who he is and how he feels about us, Lord, that you would just let these truths rest on our hearts. Um, that you would help them to sink deep into our souls so that we would walk away from here remembering um, that you love us and that you are always ready to welcome us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that, Lord. Um, Yeah, and for everything that you have done for us and continue to do for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before we really get into the chapters tonight, I wanna do a little exercise that will hopefully help you um, have an even deeper appreciation for what it says in John 6:37 that Jesus will never cast us out. Imagine for a moment with me, think of the person that's the most important to you in your life. Could be a spouse, could be a family member, a trusted friend. So now imagine that they deeply betrayed you. They broke your trust, turned their back on you, treated you as if they hated you and they hurt you in every possible way. So let yourself imagine the feelings that you would have in that situation. Now I want you to think about what you would do when you saw that person for the first time after these things happened. How would that, all of that hurt manifest itself? Would you cry and scream at them, ignore them, or maybe your anger would cause you to physically lash out? We could all probably see ourselves doing one or all of these things, right? It's the expected reaction when we are deeply hurt and betrayed by someone that we love. So now think about yourself and how you've sinned in your life. How have you betrayed the Lord? Treated him as if you hated him? Turned your back on him? Because that's what we do every time we sin, right? So how do you imagine him reacting to that? Do you subconsciously project your own human response onto Christ? Do you imagine his response to be one of rejection, disapproval, or disappointment? Well, praise the Lord because Christ is not like us in this way, ladies. 
Our sin does not cause Christ to turn against us. Um, our sin is actually incapable of making him give up on us. And in fact, it causes him to draw even closer to us in an effort to alleviate the pain that sin causes in our lives. And I hope you glean that truth from these chapters. Christ perseveres through our continual sin and never gives up on us. So Ortland takes an entire chapter to explore in depth what it means that Jesus won't cast us out. And as I said, it's one of my favorites. So every time I've read it, those mock dialogues between sinner and Christ um, that Ortland writes, they hit me all over again. They're a sweet reminder of the impossible love of Christ. And I hope they were the same for you. So since Ortland does such a fantastic job of explaining this aspect of Christ, um, I wanna focus on something different tonight. I wanna focus on our part in this process, which Ortland mentioned in the video. So we are not free of obligation here, right? Um, we, and like I said two weeks ago, I hope as you're soaking in the beauty of Christ over the course of this study that you don't lose sight of our part in this relationship. So in the middle of John 6:37, right before Jesus says that he will not cast out, he makes a clear distinction as to who he will not cast out. And it's those who come to him. So if you look it up in the original Greek, the word for come is heiko. And the original meaning of heiko is simply come. It's not complicated, ladies. Jesus is not speaking in metaphors here. He's promising that he will not banish, bid to depart, throw out, drive out, or expel any of those who move towards him. There is no bar that we have to meet. We simply need to come, and he welcomes us in. And then as Paul says in Philippians, it's the Lord who will work in us to will and work for him. So there are many accounts in the New Testament where people came to Jesus and sought him out. Just a few examples are the paralyzed man with his friends, Jairus, the leper, and centurion, both in Matthew 8. And because of these people's initiative, we see many healings and forgiving of sin, all because they came to Jesus and were not turned away. But there's one example that I want to spend some time on because I think it's an account that we can identify with pretty easily. So let's take a minute and look at Peter. Peter was one of Christ's closest disciples. He declared hours before Christ's death that he would never desert him or disown him. He was ready and willing to die for Christ, but when push came to shove, what did he do? He denied him, swearing that he didn't even know who Jesus was. That's a pretty far fall for Peter. He betrayed Jesus almost as deeply as Judas, right? He didn't sell him out to his enemies, um, but a bit, he abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour. Can you imagine the shame and guilt that Peter felt when that rooster crowed? Matthew 26, 75 says that Peter wept bitterly. And in the Greek, bitterly has the connotation of crying violently or with poignant grief. Peter was grieved over what he had done and what he had failed to do. And haven't we all been there? I know I have. Sin so easily entangles us and why, but when by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit we comprehend what we have done to those we love and more importantly to our Lord, it breaks our hearts. We know better, Peter knew better. So what do we do? Do we hide our faces in shame? Distance ourselves from God because how could he not be angry with us, right? No, nothing could be further from the truth. So let's look at what Peter did. Sometime after the crucifixion, Peter went out fishing with some of the other disciples. And while they were out in the boat, Jesus appeared to them on the shore. 
and listen to what it says Peter did in John 21, seven. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore, loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Did Peter hesitate? Did he let his shame or the fear of rebuke stop him? No. He rushed into the Sea of Galilee to swim the length of a football field just to get to Jesus faster. Peter abandoned all reason because I don't know about you, but I think I would have opted to stay in the boat (laughs) and stay dry. But Peter didn't care. His only thought was of getting to Jesus. Even after all he had done, even after completely disowning his friend and his Lord, Peter did not consider for a moment that he would not be welcomed by Jesus because he knew Jesus' heart. He had full confidence that he would be received, and he was. And so it is for us. I pray that we would be like Peter. Let's abandon what we think is better judgment. Let's not let our sins and failings hinder us, but let's run or swim headlong to our Savior because he will never not receive us. On page 66, Ortland wraps up this idea by reminding us that no matter what our current spiritual accomplishments are, we have permanent residence in Christ. So like it says in Hebrews 4.16, let's draw to the throne, near to the throne with confidence because we will never be cast out. And why won't Christ cast us out? How can we be so sure? If the abounding evidence of Jesus' past acts is not enough for you, as Ortland outlines in chapter seven, we can look to Christ's holiness and how it causes him to react to our sin to get our answer to this question. On page 55, Ortland states, to those who do belong to him, sins evoke holy longing, holy love, and holy tenderness. Ladies, when we are in Christ, our biggest mess ups to our smallest slips will never invoke the wrath of God. The devil wants to keep us from coming to Christ, so he feeds us the lie that if we do go to the Lord, we will be met with displeasure and anger from our Father. But if we look to the word for the truth, we see so much evidence to the contrary. We had you look for examples in your homework this week of how the Lord responds to sin. And I wanna share a few more examples with you tonight, and hopefully with this compilation of evidence, you will be completely assured of the truth of how God reacts to you when you are his child. So before I go through these, I wanna point out that all of these examples are from the Old Testament. Now many of you might be surprised to find out that I would much rather sit and try to find out how God's love shines through some obscure law in Leviticus than try to decipher the complicated theology of Paul. But if you're not in love with the Old Testament like I am, or you shy away from it because you think you will only find an angry God in its pages, I want you to listen closely, and as Ortland puts it, allow God to set the terms by which he will love us. We'll look more closely at this. Um, so we're gonna look at these verses and, um, about God the Father, and I pray that your hearts will be soft to see how gracious he is. We're gonna look in more into that member of the Trinity in a few weeks um, in the coming chapters, but I love giving sneak peeks. So all that to say, let's look at how God loves his people in the midst of their sin. So these examples will be up on the screen for you, and I encourage you to write them down so you can look at them in their broader context. In Exodus 32, the Israelites sinned enormously. If you were here in the spring, you read about this, right? They created a golden calf to worship in the place of Yahweh. And what did the Lord do? He relented from his wrath and had mercy on the Israelites, even though he had every right to destroy them because they had broken the covenant before the ink was even dry. He relented from his wrath, and he had mercy on them. 
In Isaiah 30, there are several verses that speak to how the Lord will react to those who come to him. Listen, it says, in returning, or the Hebrew here can also mean in repentance. So in returning, you shall be saved. The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. He will surely be gracious at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. In 2 Chronicles 30, Hezekiah is king of Judah, and he reinstates Passover, telling the Israelites to not be stiff-necked, but to turn to the Lord so his anger will not be against them. And he states, the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. In Jeremiah 31:20, the Lord says, Ephraim is my son, my darling child, I remember still. My heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. And finally, Hosea 11:8, which we looked at this passage many times already, but I wanna read it again. The Lord says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In this verse, recoils more specifically means to turn over or be changed. The Lord's heart is changed when he's presented with the sin of those he loves. He is moved to, from wrath to compassion, then and always. So God said and showed us over and over again how he will react to our sin and our failing if we only repent. Turning from our sin and towards our Lord. As he says in Hosea, he is God and not a man. He won't react to betrayal as we humans would. He is holy. And as Ortland explained, it's his holiness that causes him to see our depravity that much clearer. And it's with the sweetest pity that Christ draws near to us to give us mercy and grace for our sins. So in light of this beautiful truth, what do we need to do this week? We need to make sure that our stance on sin matches that of Christ. On page 71, Ortland quotes Thomas Goodwin who says, of all miseries, sin is the greatest. And while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also. If we, by the power of the Spirit, hate the sin in our lives as Christ does, um, and see it for the disease that it is, our sin will spark his compassion for us. However, if we run after sin and relish in it, Christ's attitude towards us and our sin will be divine and righteous wrath. As we read in chapter five, to no one will Jesus be neutral. So let's come to the Lord so that he can pour out his abundant mercy on us. We can do this with confidence because he will never cast us out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that you are holy. We thank you that you have such mercy and grace for us in our sin. Lord, I pray that these ladies would come to you this week um, to lay all of their sin at your feet so that they can be welcomed by you. And we thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs>